Hello everyone, my name's Luke and welcome to Scapegoat, the podcast where we see who gets the blame and who gets away with murders, sometimes literally. In this week's episode, we're going to discuss Concorde, the fastest civilian transportation device of all time. However, after 2003, the Concorde was retired, so journeys across the Atlantic, which on Concorde would have taken three and a half hours, were now back to eight hours, the same time they took in 1951. Was this a major step back in technology where we shot the golden goose? Or is it a tale of a white elephant that was finally put to sleep? Was the Concorde unfairly called unsafe? Were there sinister forces behind the veil trying to take it down? Or, as some people think, was it just a fad for rich yuppies which had just finally run its course? Well, prepare to go Mac 2 with the story of Concorde. Well, to understand Concorde, I think it's a little bit easier to understand if you understand aviation history. Aviation history is long and kind of very boring, but we'll go just to the very start of it. Aviation history really started when people went up to giant clock towers or just general high buildings, glued feathers on and tried to jump out of the building. Think of Icarus, if you know that story, the guy who glued on wings got too close to the sun, except they never got close to the sun, they went... Fell straight to the ground. (laughs) So, not fun. So the next real progression became hot air balloons. Imagine villains with twisty moustaches and top hats who tie people to train tracks. It's what they would travel in, you know, stuff like that. And finally, they had the mighty Zeppelin. And I'm not talking music. I am talking about those giant Hindenburg-looking things that float across the sky. However, flying really took off, if you'll pardon a bad pun, with the invention of the aeroplane. The plane started off as a simple contraption which could only fit about one passenger and got a few feet off the ground. If you want to think of it, think of a bicycle with wings attached but the wings go up and down, they get a couple of feet and they stop. So that's what people were calling an aeroplane at the time. But there was constant innovations which meant the distances and the amount of passengers that these aeroplanes could have started to gradually increase. So by 1919, they managed to actually get a plane to go all the way from Galway to Ireland to Newfoundland in a single flight. It took 16 hours and the pilots landed, they were exhausted, but they managed to go across the entire Atlantic Ocean with one plane. That was pretty much amazing for something that had only been invented 20 years ago. And the innovation in flight kind of became the crowning achievement of the age with famous pilots with the names like Charles Lindbergh or Amelia Earhart really becoming celebrated figures. I mean, the fact that you would still recognize their names today says bundles about like just how popular they were at that time. While these celebrity pilots were really popular, the idea of people traveling in airplanes for transport, apart from like pilots or military, that wasn't really thought of, that people would still travel, like if you're German and you want to travel across the ocean, you would just get a giant Zeppelin and go over five days. But there wasn't really like a public transportation system. But this began to change about the late 1930s, where people started to take seaplanes across the Atlantic Ocean. And, you know, again, this would take a long time. This would take over a day. But a lot faster and a lot safer than Zeppelin. Again, if you think of the Hindenburg, which burst into flames. Seaplanes, they were dangerous, but not as dangerous as Zeppelins, but not as safe as boats. So some people started to take them. But the improvements in safety and the speeds of these planes really started to increase with World War II. Because the Americans and the British were trying to like get troops across, or troops from Canada in the case of the British event, 
they were trying to get these planes to cross the Atlantic super quick. I mean, mostly they used boats, but they also needed like planes to carry certain stuff over. They started building a lot of airstrips, a lot of heavy-duty planes which could travel thousands of miles. And when World War II ended, there were so many military airfields and warplanes which just were almost abandoned. So they were bought up by civilians who started to use them for private companies to transport people. These companies began to turn into things like Pan Am, Air France, British Airways, American Airlines. They all began in the late 1940s just buying hardware off the military and putting people into Lancaster bombers and saying, okay, we've got an airport now, this old airstrip. With the beginning of these civilian airlines, people began to start crossing the Atlantic far more frequently. And the times began to slash. So again, by 1951, it only took eight hours to cross the Atlantic. And uh, times from New York to London were just nine hours. It wasn't terrible at all. People started to think, hmm, this is actually quite practical. As people went from a day to 16 hours to eight hours, they were thinking, how do we get this to four hours? The answer to that question is a lot harder than you'd actually think. Because conventional logic, or at least my logic when I was thinking about this is, how do you go faster? You get a bigger engine, you give it more power, it will go faster. That's why I would travel faster in a Ferrari, because it's got 500 horsepower than a horse, which has got one horsepower. The problem with this thinking is there's such a thing called the sound barrier. So this is the speed of sound, however fast sound travels, which is 768 miles an hour or 1,235 kilometers an hour. And when you pass this barrier, you go supersonic. Once you get supersonic, it's really down to, you have to have really good aerodynamics because there's so much friction in the air that if you have poor aerodynamics, if you don't have like smooth shapes, there's so much friction, it will slow down and you will probably crash. Also, there'll be so much heat because like normal planes, when they're flying at 30,000 feet, the planes actually get quite cold. If you go to supersonic at 30,000 feet, your plane could catch fire. So you see, once you get beyond the speed, things start to get far more complicated and it's dangerous enough for pilots. Now, before the supersonic uh, planes started to emerge, there were warplanes which could go at the speed. But again, these were piloted by people who were on ejector seats with oxygen masks who kind of knew we might end up crashing this. And a lot of the supersonic jets uh, in the 1940s did crash, that they'd go supersonic and then the pilot just couldn't pull up. The plane would start to nosedive and they couldn't get out, so they'd either eject or die. These were a lot of the problems which were facing the idea of building a civilian supersonic jet. The British decided in the late 1950s, we actually want to try and build this. So the reason they kind of wanted to build this was it was a prestige project which they thought would instill national pride. They've been slowly losing their empire since about 1945. They felt, hmm, you know, we need something to give us national pride. And they thought, if we build like the world's best aeroplane, it will bring a load of jobs to Britain, it will create like a lot of national pride, and everyone will think we're really cool, and they might give us back our colonies. No, they didn't really think that, but maybe they did. You know, this is the 1950s, they were pretty crazy. What they planned to build was a plane which could reach Mach 2, and Mach 2 is actually twice the speed of sound. If the speed of sound is 768 miles an hour, this would be somewhere in the range of... 1,500 miles an hour. 
incredibly fast if you consider that today's commercial transport the fastest it goes is 700 and they gave a budget of 100 million pounds which doesn't sound a lot but back in 1950 this was some serious change this could buy you a lot of stuff when they started to design this plane they based the idea of old fighter planes and they started looking at different wing designs and they settled on this weird sort of og v wing shape which uh, is a very specific kind of shape imagine the number five and the number five is the back of the wing is the line at the start of the five so that's it going then you see the five slowly curves and that's the start of the wing going in then it kind of goes in like almost concave then hits the side of the plane and the bottom half of the five isn't used so that's what the kind of the shape of the wing is if you really want to look it up, just Google OGGE and you'll get it. Or you can even just look up Concord and you'll see what I mean. But it's just a wing which starts off very thin, then becomes almost exponentially grows out and has a rounded corner. These wings were very important for this design because aerodynamically they were extremely sound because they created these vortices of circular air above the wings which really helped lift and really helped stability because like with a lot of the fighter planes before this just they would get into this and they would have nothing which would really sustain them in the air because the air patterns beyond the sign barrier were really kind of difficult to uh, sustain what would actually happen so actually having these vortices of air made this really stable so they thought we've come up with a great idea but as they slowly started to spend more and more money, they realized $100 million will not fund this aircraft. So the British thinking, oh, who are our friends that we can go to? Let's go to the Americans. So they approached the American president, who at the time was John F. Kennedy. And they said, Kennedy, would you build this plane with us? And Kennedy said, nope, no, we're not going to build this plane. That sounds like a ridiculous idea. You go back to your smelly little island, English people. And they were like, ooh, boo-hoo. But they decided, hmm, we need to build a plane with somebody else. So the Americans have said no. Who can we ask? They went to the French. And the French in secret had also been developing their own supersonic aircraft earlier in the 1950s. But they had had to cancel the project due to a lack of engine manufacturing capabilities because they had all the bits so they, they could build the shell of the aircraft but when it actually came to the engines they didn't actually have engine manufacturers in France who were capable. Well in Britain they had Rolls-Royce which makes plane engines which were. So both of the both Britain and France looked at each other. Britain said hey you've got a pretty good plane and France said you've got a pretty good engine. They decided to join forces and put this together. By doing this, they signed a contract on November 1962, which meant publicly everyone now knew that Britain and France together were going to build a supersonic airliner. They were going to call it the Concorde, which was spelt with an E. So this is Concorde as an agreement in British and French, but they use the French spelling of Concorde with an E at the end. You can either say in English the Concorde or Concorde, depending on circumstance. And in French, it's Le Concorde. This Concorde it would have either between 92 and 128 passengers. Would go to speak slightly over Mach 2. Would have a range of about 4,500 miles or 7,250 kilometers, which is enough to cross the Atlantic, but really not enough to cross the Pacific. 
The French, when they were designing their aircraft, wanted to go less than this. They thought, we actually just want a medium-range aircraft, which would probably go to North Africa, but not 4,000 kilometers. The British insisted, no, we need to go to America, 4,500 kilometers. So the French agreed. Having agreed on terms, when they were signing the contract, the British were super suspicious of the French, thinking, now these Frenchies are going to pull out and they're going to take their money and they're going to leave us with this plane that we all have to pay for ourselves. We need to force them into building this with us. So they wrote into the contract this huge clause which said, if either of us pull out of this project, the other will have to pay billions. And billions with a B, back in the day in the 1950s, 60s, would be the kind of money that you really could not lose. This would be crazy, crazy money. Imagine losing trillions now. That's the kind of thing that you'd lose. So the British thought we're really smart. The French can't pull out. So Tony Benn suggested this. They got the French to sign. So they said, ha ha, we've got the French locked into this. But this almost immediately backfired on the British. Within a year, there had been an election and the Conservatives took over from Labour. And the Conservatives looked at the Concorde and thought, this isn't going to cost how much we think. This is going to cost 10 times more. We need to cancel this project now because this is an albatross of a plane which is price tag is far too high. So they went to France and said, oh, we want to cancel this plane. And France looked at them and said, you want to what? You just got to sign this contract less than two years ago saying that you wanted to keep this plane. They said, yeah, but we kind of want to cancel it. And France was like, if you cancel it, we will cut off all military ties and we'll, cut, we'll give you this big fine. You do what you want, Britain, but you better do this. So France has pretty much manned up and said, hey, you better do this, Britain. And Britain had to back down and say, yes, France, sorry, France, we'll do this with you, France. So Britain and France, again, were dedicated to doing the plane. Again, there was little tiffs that Britain decided, hey, we want to spell Concord without an E, which became a big thing, but then they put the E back on. There's a general falling out between the two parties, but they still managed to build something. Britain and France decided the best way for them to try and recoup their money from this investment was to sell Concorde to the leading airlines of the world. They went around in the late in the early 60s, actually, and started trying to sell these planes to different countries. So they're hoping to send hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. What actually only happened was they only managed to sell them to 16 airlines and they sold less than 100 planes. So each of the 16 airlines was saying, okay, we'll buy four or we'll buy six. But it wasn't in huge quantities that they were expecting or wanted. They wanted to sell like airlines 50 planes. They sold them to people like Pan Am, Air France, British Airways, American Airways, Qantas, Air India, Japan Airlines. So they're kind of looking at this and thinking, okay, we've only we sold less than 100 of these. But if they turn out to be good, people will probably buy more. But the problem with these orders as well was they didn't get the money up front. They were preliminary orders that they uh, promised to give money once they were built. But it wasn't like money in the pocket. So Britain and France have still had to wait for the planes to be built to get paid. As Concorde announced this and they started to sell planes... Rivals started to emerge because other countries decided, no, we want to build the world's first supersonic airliner. And the first major rival was America. So America, if you remember, John F. Kennedy said, nope, we won't sign a deal to build a supersonic airliner with you, Britain. But when Britain announced it, America went all space race and said, no, nope, we need to be the first to do this. We need to be the first to do this. So John F. Kennedy decided, we want a plane. 
that will go Mac free. So we are now publicly announced we're going to build a plane which goes Mac free, which is half as fast again, faster than the British and French plane. It's, he said the American government will pay 75% of the cost of making this plane and he let different companies submit designs. So it went down to the final two, which is Lockheed and Boeing submitting designs. Boeing's were finally chosen as the winner and they designed a plane which was said to go at Mach free, would have between two and 300 passengers, which is double the Concorde's, and would have a similar range. So they said, look at this. The Concorde only has, what, 80, 90, 100 passengers? We've got 300, and we go twice as fast. Ha <laughs> ha! Ours is going to win. And Britain was like, why didn't we sign the deal with them? As soon as they, America jumped into the race saying, ha ha, we're going to build this, Russia immediately jumped in saying, da, comrade, we will also build the great supersonic jet to beat you like Sputnik. And the Russians proposed a plane called the Tupolev Tu-144, which was supposed to be designed by leading Soviet architect Andrei Tupolev. But whenever they actually produced the plane, it looked shockingly like the design of Concorde. That a lot of people actually, to this day, believe that it was actually, they stole the Concorde designs through espionage. There's actually a great documentary on YouTube, if you can find it, which is about, uh, it's what they call Forgotten History, which is all about the Russian spies in Paris trying to steal the plans for Concorde and asking for banana flambés and all sorts of weird, weird, like, code words and, like, euphemisms and all this sort of stuff, so... If you actually get a chance, just look up, like, the story of Concord Ski on YouTube. It's absolutely great. So, as I said there, the Tupolev, because it looks so like the Concord, the Western media started calling it Concord Ski, because they're like, oh, this is just another Russian ripoff. So, but the thing that impressed people far less about the Concord Ski was it looked like a ripoff of the Concord, but it also was said to have a lesser range than Concord. It could only fly 2,700 miles which is only two-thirds of what Concorde could fly. Also, it could only have 70 passengers. So it was smaller, it could fly less, and it had less seatings. People were looking and saying, the Americans look good, Concorde looks second best, and the Russians don't look great. But whoever got their plane to market first would probably win. It's like modern video game consoles that if PlayStation gets something out before Xbox, they'll probably sell more because people see something new and want it. So the first people to market will probably be the first to win. There began to be a great rivalry between Britain and France, America and Russia. From the public announcement of Concords, the Americans started from that point to start saying, Britain, you can't build this plane. You can't. They began to say via public memos, Britain saying, you've bitten off more than you can chew. Privately, they said to the British Prime Minister, they better listen to America's advice, quote, before it's too late. So they started giving all this sort of cloak and dagger threats, saying, yo, something bad will happen to you if you build this plane. But Britain, however, just didn't want to back down because France had already said, if you back out, you will have to pay a huge bill. You'll lose diplomatic relations with us. Being the second nearest country to Britain, you don't want to lose diplomatic relations with them. Also, they just didn't want to back down from, like, vague American threats because they still viewed themselves as a powerful nation's Threats shouldn't really, you shouldn't really listen to those sort of things. So they just said, nah, we're going to continue with the Concorde. By the end of the 1960s, test models of these planes started to emerge. 
In a shock move, the Russians were the first to test their plane in December 1968. They did just a small sort of low-key test where the plane got off the ground and came back down. And it was a little fanfare and small enough press attention in Russia. But when it hit in the West, there was shockwaves that they said, Oh God, this is another Sputnik where they're going to get this plane and the plane's going to be, you know, the first out and they're going to beat us. So there was great pressure from, uh, you know, Britain in Britain, France and America. No, we need to rush this faster. We need to beat these Ruskies. So the British and French, three months later, decided they'd need to test Concorde and they tested it in Toulouse. This was just, again, a small minor test that they did it around an airfield. They circled and they came back. So they said, this is flight worthy. But by October that year, six months later, they managed to have the plane tested at supersonic speed. So they said, yes, we've, we can actually get it above Mach 1. This plane is functional. Now, the Americans were rushing to try and build this Boeing plane, which could beat Concorde and Konkordsky. But by 1971, they still only had a large wooden mock-up of the plane, which they took around and showed the press and said, this is going to be it. Richard Nixon, the American president, was hugely in favour of continuing funding. But the Senate of the United States really wasn't. They blocked funding, said, no, no, we're not giving more money to this. This is a useless project. All you've got is a wooden model. And Richard Nixon was like, no, I'm Richard Nixon. You better, you better give me the plane. But that sounds more like William Shatner. But yeah, you get my, my drift. Nixon was trying to pressure them, but they were Democrats. So they said, no, we're not going to pay for this. What they kind of forced Boeing to do was they forced Boeing to go to Wall Street to try and get private funding. So they said, we've got this half funded. If we can get some like private funding from like firms to invest, we can actually save the project. But they went to Wall Street and a lot of the bankers and brokers there just start questioning, does this plane have any ability to make returns? So yeah, we can give you another $500 million to build this, but Will you ever make $500 million back? And they find the idea that questionable. But when they were there, they continued to invest in another plane Boeing had released the year before, a small plane called the 747. Now, by small plane, I actually mean a jumbo jet. So this was the world's first jumbo jet, and it was a subsonic plane, meaning it couldn't go faster than 750 miles an hour. But it had a much greater range than the proposed Concorde. It had about 6,000 miles and could take over 400 passengers. So Wall Street added it up and said, four times the passengers will probably mean four times the money. This is the horse that we're going to back here. With the Americans out of the supersonic flight, with them investing in mass transportation, it was between the Russians and the British and French. With a working model of the Concorde, the British and French sent the plane all around the world to try and drum up more sales. So once they had a working model, they sent it to countries like Switzerland or Germany or Russia. Well, not actually Russia, Cold War, but Iran and Bahrain and Australia. And they started going to these countries, national airlines and saying, here, we've got a working model of this. Do you want to buy one? And this was actually quite successful because once they saw what this plane looked like and they could go on and they could ride it, they started to get a few more orders. Like, again, it was only like six planes per country, but, you know, their orders started to slowly increase and they thought, yes, we're selling more. We will finally make a profit on this thing. However, the advance of a 1973 Paris air show rapidly changed the fortunes of Concorde. 
This airship was the first time that a Concorde and Concordski were in the same place at the same time. Since it was a French air show, the French wanted to maximise their exposure to show how great the Concorde was. So at the last minute, doing an ultra dirty move, they turned to the Russian pilots and said, Concordski only has half the time that you thought it had. So the French were like, oh, ha, 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 ha. we will actually just like trick them. So ours will have four times the amount of time that theirs will have. And we'll just show how much better they are via precedention. So the Concorde went up in the sky and started flying around. It did like some cool technical maneuvers, but mostly people describe it as like boring. But, you know, it was up for an hour and people said, oh, that's pretty cool, but it didn't do much. So the Russians kind of feeling a bit snubbed. They thought, OK, we've got 15 minutes to do a couple of tricks up in the air. We need to do something spectacular. They did some basic maneuvers. Then slowly the plane started to rise in the air, then began to rise quicker and quicker. People were looking up in the air thinking, wow, that's got some acceleration going up. Then the plane started to descend, going down faster and faster and faster and faster. Until people realized, this plane can't pull up. It's going down so fast, it's lost control. And the pilot slowly started to try and pull up, and the wing fell off the Concorde ski plummeting the plane into earth, crashing into the ground, killing all six crew and eight on the ground, including four children. Although it was the rival plane that had crashed, the idea of a supersonic airliner crashing was a devastating blow to Concorde, with people suddenly questioning, is this mode of transport actually safe at all, or is this just really dangerous and we've just been underestimating it? Now, there are different theories about what actually happened that day to Concordski. Some people say sabotage. Some people say the pilot was doing something dodgy. Other people say that it was a French setup. But we're not actually going to cover that today. I actually might add a bonus episode of what happened to Concordski, and we'll talk about that. But just we can't really go too far away from the story that we're talking about now. So we'll get back to that at a later point. However, a second negative effect also hit Concorde that year. After the Yom Kippur War in late 1973, the OPEC nations decided that they were going to try and boycott the UK, America, Portugal and a lot of Western countries. And because of that, the price of oil went up from $3 a barrel to $12 a barrel. While this is bad for the whole airline industry, it was particularly bad for a Concorde, which was a very fuel-thirsty plane. So at $3 a barrel, they were thinking, oh, this is grand. $12 a barrel, people were like, can we really afford this? The oil crisis also caused a stock market crash, which again meant people had less money to invest and people had less credits, so they had to uh, try and de-invest money from what they had invested in to try and have like liquid capital. With these adverse elements, the orders for Concords started to drop like flies. They had over 100 orders, and slowly countries started to slash them, until there was only two airlines who actually still had orders for Concorde. And they were British Airways and Air France, which were both owned by the governments of the countries who were building the airlines. So all other countries were out. They were just building them for their national airlines. Japan was out, Iran was out, America was out. This was devastating. And this problem wouldn't have happened, apart from the fact that they decided to push back the release date of the Concorde 
for like not really the worst reasons, but they could have released Concord in 1972. And if they had done that, they'd have avoided the oil crisis, they'd have avoided the Paris Air Show, they'd have probably sold hundreds of planes. So it was just by the fact that they were releasing it one or two years later than planned, this really came back to bite Concorde. Now, TU-144, the Concordski, will probably disappear from our story now. It was later rumoured to have another testing crash in Russia. People just thought it was an unsafe aeroplane. So by the time, you know, Concorde was released in 1976, nobody wanted to buy it. Russia ended up buying 16 and just flying them throughout the USSR. But these planes only made 55 flights before they were turned into cargo airlines. And after they were cargo airlines for about three years, they were just retired. People thought, no, too dangerous, too bad planes. Konkordsky is out. So now we can see there's only one supersonic airliner, the Concorde. But they've only got an order to build 14 planes. Knowing the position the French and British governments were in, the British Airways and Air France kind of start rubbing their hands of glee because they thought, hmm, is they've built 14 or 15 airplanes already and they have to sell them and no one else wants to buy them. We can offer them really low money to buy these. So British Airways, being kind of jerks towards the British government, said, you know how much we'll offer you? We'll offer you one pound per plane. Air France offered the same to the French government. The Concorde project, which had cost the British and French governments £1.3 billion, managed to recoup £14. That's absolutely insane. But British and French were like, okay, we finally got these planes off our hands. You just take them, because we need someone to take them, because if nobody takes them, we'll all lose our jobs. BA, or British Airways, began to run routes from London to Bahrain, and Air France began running routes from Paris to Rio via Dakar. However, to really make money, both airlines realised they needed a route to America. Now, a route to America, they would probably want a route to New York, because that was a financial capital. Somewhere like Washington DC or Miami would be good, but to make things profitable, they needed to be flying into JFK. But this was a real problem. Because America denied Concord the right to land in the USA. In the media, there was a lot of different reasons given that were stating Concord was a dangerous plane. Initially, Americans claimed that Concord flying at Mach 2 would create such a big sonic boom, it would break windows and it would knock over cows and sheep and livestock and would devastate the American economy. Now, this was a little bit foolish because... The Concorde would only fly Mach 2 over the ocean. You don't fly Mach 2 over land. This probably wouldn't happen. They also just claimed Concorde was too noisy of an aeroplane. So if it was flying over New York, it would wake everybody up and might even break windows. They also started to claim that Concorde, because it flew at 60,000 feet, while normal airlines flew at 30,000 feet, they said it goes up too high, it will damage the ozone layer because it's going so high. No, we don't want this. We don't want this anywhere near our country. Hearing these protests, Congress banned the Concorde from going into the US and said, look, these people don't want your plane here. Go away. 
But Britain and France were like, no, 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 no. America, you have to play ball with us. So they started putting on real political pressure to the Nixon administration, or it was actually the Ford administration at that time, till the US Secretary of Transportation said it was okay for the Concorde to land in Washington, D.C. But it was still up to New York to decide if the Concorde was let into their state. And New York did not want the Concorde in their state. New York remained firmly against the flight of the Concords. See what I did there? However, via more diplomatic pressure, in 1977, British Airways and Air France were left to send one plane each to New York on a trial basis, just so the aviation authorities could see the planes and hear them and try and figure out what to do. In an attempted charm offensive, the pilots, once they landed in JFK, did a press conference where they started answering questions about their planes. So in a BBC documentary, it describes the crowd as being immediately hostile. But as soon as they saw the plane, they fell in love with the beauty of it. And they began saying, we want this beautiful plane in our city. Although, if you look at almost any of our source, it says this did not happen. The crowd just remained hostile and did not like the Concorde. That might be a little bit of a British media twist there. The pilots, once they landed into New York, they made this agreement that they would actually fly the planes to do a little bit of a sound test to see how noisy the planes actually were. And the Americans are thinking, okay, this is great. If we can actually just prove these planes are too loud, we'll have a legal reason to ban this. Everyone will remain happy. They set up these sound guys and they told the planes to fly over them. They could get like a noise reading. The British Airways and Air France pilots did this, and their planes didn't even appear on the sound monitor. They were said to be that quiet, so everyone was shocked. And this result actually helped the city overturn the ban. Now, there were still people in New York who were really annoyed by this, and they kept challenging this ruling all the way up to the Supreme Court, which finally sided with Concord, making Concord legal in the United States. But the reason it passed the sound test is a little bit actually dubious. In a Channel 4 documentary, Captain Walpole, who was a British Airways pilot, admits to cheating on the sound test. So the way that he cheated was when they were going to go over, he turned his engine down very low and started to do a long banking turn, which would cause far less sound. So if he had flown straight over, it would have probably, something would have occurred in the sound test. But the fact that he went so slowly over and made this, it was almost kind of cheating. Because they're saying, hey, this is less than the President's Air Force One. How can we reject this? But if it had been going full speed, the Concorde was a noisy airline. They might have found a way to ban it. This was kind of clever by Walpole, but it was also kind of cheating. Once they went to New York, the Air France and British Airways thought, Mon and... Oh, good, jolly good, we've solved our money problems. But they really hadn't, because since its inception, Concorde was still being subsidised by Britain and France. It was a costly service to run due to the maintenance done by Airbus, who were the people who maintained the Concords. And going at supersonic speed meant the planes expanded and contracted and bits fell off. They actually spent more on maintenance than an average airliner by quite a bit. Looking at these maintenance charges, British Airways threatened to close down its service if it couldn't turn a profit on its own. British Airways turned to Brian Walpole, who was the same man who had done the turning trick to let Concorde into New York. And British Airways said, Walpole, make this plane profitable 
or we won't run Concords in two years' time. So Walpole had a big thing on his hands. He was going to lose his job if he didn't turn things around. And he would lose Concord if he didn't turn things around. Walpole just tried to learn everything he could about Concord to see if they could do it more cheaply. So he looked at the price of the sandwiches. He looked at what kind of champagne, what kind of seating things. He was just trying to find a way to cut corners. Couldn't really find a good way to cut corners. He began to think, why don't we just ask people how much they think Concord costs? So he originally rang up looking for businessmen to ask, how much would you pay for Concord? But when you ring up businessmen, what actually happened was, you don't actually get businessmen, you get businessmen's secretaries. And they started to think, who actually bucks the flight? Is it the businessman or is it the secretary? He thinks it's the secretary. And he asked the secretaries, okay, how much do you think Concord costs? And at the time, Concord was costing about £800 for a single flight. And the ladies there were saying, oh, maybe £2,000. And he said, okay. Hung up the phone and thought, okay, if these women are willing to pay £2,000, let's just charge £2,000. They more than doubled their prices, and they still sold tickets because the rich businessmen who were flying Concord, they were willing to pay whatever because they're rich business snobs, and the secretaries didn't know that it was a bad idea not to pay this amount of money. So Concord kind of cheated and they started getting people to pay more money via British Airways. But, you know, it also made it was more out of the reach of the common man than ever. So this was a project which, which was really just helping the super rich fly very quickly from New York to London. British Airways made such a profit from the scheme that they actually Concord, although it was only seven planes, made up a quarter of their total profits throughout the 1980s. And this slowly started to go down throughout the late 80s to early 90s when Airbus charged more for maintenance, but it was still getting a considerable profit. In contrast, Air France never ran Concorde for profit. They did it more for like national pride reasons. So they would charge about the same ticket price as British Airways, but they just didn't really fill the planes and it wasn't really that big of a thing. The British Airways were trying to make money. Air France was like, no, we just love this because it's French and it's really cool. However, on July 25th, the year 2000, tragedy struck. An Air France flight 4590, which was scheduled to fly from Charles de Gaulle, Paris, to JFK, New York, using Concorde, crashed. The flight had been chartered by a German cruise line as the first leg of a Caribbean holiday. So this plane was jam-packed full of happy German tourists. Unfortunately, the Concorde plane that they had originally intended to fly with needed to undergo maintenance. So after two hours of waiting in Charles de Gaulle, Air France decided to switch for a different Concorde, which was the oldest one in the fleet. And after doing a little bit of servicing for this plane, they decided to take off and go to JFK. Unfortunately, as the plane slowly began to gain speed on the runway, it suddenly swerved left, barely missing a Boeing 747 returning from Japan, which had current French president Jacques Chirac on board. After the swerve, the plane slowly started to continue down, but as it was past V1 speed, which is the speed that you can safely slow down, it had to take off. And as it slowly started to take off, a wheel exploded and burst into the fuel tank, causing a massive fire to erupt. The flames came out of the back of the Concorde as it streamed down the runway, and they couldn't stop, they couldn't land. 
So the pilot decided, okay, one of the engines are failing. I'll turn off this engine. The other fa engine started failing. He turned off that engine. So he was flying a Concorde about 100 feet off the ground. And it was slowly losing height and slowly losing speed until it crashed into the side of a hotel two minutes later, killing all 100 passengers on board, nine crew and four people on the ground. Due to this shocking event, all Concorde flights were cancelled. The crash happened for several different reasons, but people have disputed what these reasons are. So the official recommendations from the BAA, which are the France's Accident Investigation Bureau, say that the accident occurred when the second wheel of the Concorde ran over a metal strip which had fallen out of the back of a Continental Airlines DC-10 10 minutes before the Concorde started to go down the runway. This shattered the wheel, causing the wheel to explode and go into the fuel tank, causing the fire. They said that everything on the plane was absolutely fine before this, and the flight crew were absolutely the right people to be flying the plane. So they did nothing wrong. It was just a terrible accident. But people question if this is actually what really happened because certain people say it was certainly the pilot's fault. John Hutchinson, who served as a Concorde captain for 15 years for British Airways, said, The fire on its own would have been imminently survivable. The pilot should have been able to find fly his way out of trouble. But it had it not been for a lethal combination of operational error and negligence, and maintenance of the Department of Air France that nobody wants to talk about, the plane could have landed safely. So he was blaming the pilot, or he was blaming Air France maintenance, saying these are actually what caused the problem to happen. And the reasons he said this were that the plane that crashed was seriously overweight. When calculating the weight of the plane, the pilot had not taken in luggage into account. Via luggage, it was two tons overweight. That's a serious amount of luggage, I know, but it was two tons overweight. But due to the headwinds coming in, it actually meant the plane was six tons over the weight it needed to be to get off the runway. And this also caused secondary problems with the Concorde, but the Concorde had six different fuel tanks at the front and the back of the plane, and they would try and balance the fuel tanks so the fuel would either be in the front and the back at different times during the flight so the plane would be optimum weight balance so it could get off and it could be stable and it could go back down again because it was six ton overweight they said there was far too much fuel at the back which also exacerbated the problem so there was six tons of weight at the back of the plane there was extra fuel at the back so it was heavily weighted at the back of this plane people always suggest the pilot monsieur marty had not done the correct procedure by switching off the engines. According to protocol for airline pilots, if the engine is on fire, what they're supposed to do is fly up to 400 feet or as high as you can get off the ground around 400 feet and just fly around in circles waiting for the fuel to burn off and then come down for a safe landing. By turning off the engines, this was the incorrect procedure to do. The Concorde that was flying also was missing an essential piece of its landing gear. So it was missing something which is called a spacer. So the Concorde actually has what I would say 16 wheels, but it actually only has four. 
but it has four turrets that come down which help it land but each of these turrets have four small wheels attached so each of these wheels work in tandem and take equal pressure but without the spacer it meant the wheels on this were no longer like working together they were more like the wheels on a shopping trolley which would be going around at different times and due to this lack of like equalizing pressure they say this is the reason why the plane skidded before it ran over the metal strip and this is the reason why it exploded when it went over the metal strip they said if this uh, spacer had been on the plane it would have been fine nothing bad would have actually happened the third thing that's important to note is French law is a lot different than the laws of the country that you're probably listening to this in. Because in France, it's routine to seek criminal indictments against public transportation accidents, regardless of whether there's clear evidence of criminal intents or negligence. Because of this, the French government would say, we do not want Air France to be sued by 100 Germans and their families because of negligence. Let's see what actually happened. Okay, there's this metal strip which came from an American airplane. Okay, well, it's clearly them who have been negligent. So the French pushed this and they brought Continental Airlines to trial and said Continental Airlines should pay 70% of all damages. And, you know, they really stuck it to them with French law. And different people questioned, hmm, was this actually just Air France and the French government trying to get out of a problem that they caused by a lack of a space or lack of pilot training and doing the wrong thing? Now, this isn't my opinion. I'm just stating what the BAE said, and I'm stating what these different opinions are. I'm not taking a side yet. But after the crash, the Concorde fleet were taken off the market they realized that we still need to use them and we still need to make money. So they started to edit the insides of the Concorde, including more secure electrical controls, adding Kevlar lining to the fuel tank so it would never explode again, and making specially reinforced bus development tires. Each of these upgrades took a year and cost £17 million. British Airways also hired a top designer to modernize the inside of the Concorde, making a beautiful French lever design. So BA were going all out, being like, we're reintroducing the Concorde, and we're going to try and make money off this. BA and Air France planned to make a big fanfare and big reintroduction of the Concorde the day before they planned to reintroduce. On their final test flight, which was full of BA staff, they flew half the way out to the Atlantic and flew back, and they thought, this is brilliant. But as the pilots slowly started to land back into London Heathrow, they started to hear some news from New York, as the day that they were doing this was September 11th, 2001. And due to 9-11, their proposed fanfare and reintroduction of this airplane did not go down well. They actually, actually minimalized their advertising campaign because 9-11 traumatized so many people about airplanes. This had a huge negative effect. Many people didn't even know the Concorde was reintroduced because people were just so traumatized by 9-11 and they didn't want to hear anything about airplanes. By the 10th of April 2003, Air France and British Airways announced they would retire their Concorde fleets. They stated this was due to a slump because of 9-11, airfare since 9-11 being not very popular, and 
generally just said the 25th of July crash also negatively affected. Because of these three factors, we can no longer run the Concord fleet. So British businessman Richard Branson from Virgin Airways immediately offered to buy the entire fleet of Concords, but he said he would buy them at the price that British Airways bought them at of one pound. So this was immediately rejected, saying we're not selling you these Concords for one pound. So he offered a million pounds, it was rejected. Five million pounds, it was rejected. And they generally said, no, we don't have to sell them to you. British Richard Branson said, yes, you do. When the Concords were built, there was something written in that if you don't run them, another British airline will. The British government said, no, Richard Branson, you don't need to buy these. We are going to just let them die. Although someone wanted to buy them, the Concorde was finished. The final Air France flight took place on the 30th of May, 2003. British Airways kept the Concords for slightly longer. Before they retired them, they did a tour of the Concorde throughout the UK. So they went to places like Birmingham, and Belfast, and Edinburgh. So people could see the machine one last time. So on the 24th of October, 2003, three Concords landed in Heathrow within minutes of each other, being the final commercial flight of the Concords. But there's been people saying that there's a possible return of the Concorde. About two years ago, a group called Club Concorde announced it had secured £160 million of investment and said they wanted to buy an aircraft of the Concorde and they wanted to run it, a single Concorde, just to keep one in the skies. And they said, we've got the money, we'll buy one, we'll just do this between like London and JFK and there'll just be one Concorde again. But so far... This hasn't really worked because there's been a lot of ventures of people trying to buy a Concorde, but it's just never really worked. The Concords ended up in museums and a lot of them, while they would need a lot of repair to be airworthy, different people were trying to get the Concorde to return for the London 2012 Olympics, didn't happen. I would be skeptical enough Club Concorde can make this work. Another few supersonic flight transport thing has slowly emerged in the last few weeks. Boom is a company which is owned by Sir Richard Branson, which uh, can use, which is planning to build planes called the XB-1. They're going to transport people across the Atlantic at the same speed as Concorde in about three and a half hours. And they say they're going to make a quarter of the price of Concorde, which final flights of Concorde were about £16,000 return. So a quarter of that would still be four grand. They should be here in 2023. They announced this a couple of months ago, so they've got mm, six years to build this. I don't think so. I think it took the British Airways Air France, I know it was a half a decade ago, or I mean half a century ago, but I don't think they will have the capability to build these planes. I really don't. But prove me wrong. If Scapegoat still exists in 2023, you guys can all email me and say, Luke, you're a big smelly jerk and we hate you. Besides, you're wrong about this. Okay, guys, we're going to reach into a conclusion. So I'm going to tell you a couple extra Concorde facts and say why it closed. But at the beginning, we asked certain questions and we will go back to those questions just to round things off. But it's important to note, I think, that people often say that the Paris air crash was the one incident that Concorde was unsafe. And besides that was a very safe airline. But in the 27 years of service, Concorde had 70 tyre-related incidents, seven of them causing serious damage and being potentially catastrophic. They also had two other major crashes with air fins falling off and stuff, so it wasn't really 
as safe as a lot of people will say. And there was actually a report in 1970 which said that they needed to change the wheel on the Concorde and they needed to reinforce the fuel tank. If they had followed this 1970s report and had uh, changed the wheel and they had changed the fuel tank, there probably would have been a lot less incidents and the Paris crash probably wouldn't have happened in the same way they might have actually managed to save the planes. Due to this, I kind of think that this is kind of like a level of incompetence that had they followed this, it probably would have been a safer airline. It wasn't once completely safe, but they could have made it safer and then maybe this would have saved Concorde. It's also important to know Concorde was behind the times because it used purely analog controls. Even the seats inside the Concords were very almost 1950s style transport that they had a lot of leg room, very little headroom. And the seats were just lever seats. You know, if you go into a seat now in the plane, on the back they've got a little TV monitor where you can listen to music or watch movies or whatever. That these planes were just like a lever seat. So you just sit there and drink champagne for three and a half hours. I mean, it wasn't really the most entertaining thing. I mean, apart from going very fast. Uh, again, they never really made that much money. British Airways claim they're making £30 million a year, but that was under while they're being subsidised. Air France was always running at a loss. The whole thing is that they're being subsidised by the government, and did, especially did it pay itself off? Did it ever reach the profits that it would pay off a £1.3 billion investment? No. I think that if you take the amount Air France was losing British Airways, it just about made even over 27 years of service and they never recouped the 1.3 billion. They only made 14 pounds back, so a bit of a ripoff. Other people will always say it was very impractical because of its fuel tank size. So it could fly London or Paris to JFK, but it couldn't fly Frankfurt, which is just another 200 miles because the fuel tanks were built to 4,500 miles and had they been slightly bigger, you know, you could have got a lot more European destinations because maybe Americans flying JFK didn't want to go to London or Paris, but they'd have been happy to go to Madrid or Milan or Prague. I know this is during the Cold War, so probably not Prague, but uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of cool places that they could have went. And had the plane been better designed, you know, maybe they had made a version of it which could fly 7,000 miles. They would have got people thinking, hey, Australia to Singapore or Korea to Australia or New Zealand to Los Angeles you know people would have said hey this would be a great idea so had it been better designed maybe it would have worked I think another thing that people don't really bring into it and it's an argument I've heard being made online I think it makes a lot of sense is when the Concorde was originally designed it was designed for kind of rich businessmen to fly from London to New York or New York to London very quickly so they could do a meeting and fly back very quickly. But due to the introduction of video chat and internet, I think a lot of the things that you wouldn't have done over phone, that you've flown over, started to disappear. That companies who say, hey, we want to speak to our head office in London, you could just Skype and you could start talking to people via direct line there without spending thousands and thousands of dollars of flying. So sure, it would still be celebrities and certain yuppie types who want to fly Concorde, but I would say like a lot of hard-nosed businessmen would be like, no, I want to stay in my office. I don't want to waste a day flying to London and back. We're going to go back to the questions that we asked at the very start, which were, 
Was the Concord unfairly called unsafe? And I think, just going purely by my opinion, I think the Concord was a reasonably safe airline, but I think they could have made it safer. Going by the recommendations made in that 1970s report, I think they could have avoided a lot of trouble, and I think they're courting danger for the sake of cheapness. I think with something like Concord, which is prestige, and it's supposed to be like expensive and the best, they should have put the money into it to make sure it was the safest. Because if you started saying Concord was the safest as well as the best, you know, I think that's a major advertising thing that they missed out on. And burst wheels and tires, you've got 70 burst wheels. You do something about it at some stage. Were there sinister forces trying to bring it down? I think that you can look and you can see a lot of the Americans threatening, trying to stop the Concorde from being developed in the 1960s. I think you can take this as a bit of a sinister force, but I think everyone pretty much knew the Americans wanted their Boeing design to win and become the first uh, supersonic airliner. They were trying to push this in the 1960s, and I think a lot of like not laying the Concorde into America initially was sort of sour grapes, but... They could have put their foot down and said no concourse into USA and tried to stick with that. But I don't think there was like one unified sort of like American dark entity saying no, 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 we're going to stop the concord. I think it was individuals. Certain people wanted it. Certain people in the House of Representatives didn't want it. Certain people in New York hated it. Certain people in Wyoming wanted it probably. You know, it's like a big country. I don't see it there as being something like very clandestine behind it. But uh, yeah, I mean, if somebody suddenly sends me something saying, okay, there's a CIA document which proves, send that to me and I'll make a redacted statement. Uh, last question was, was it a fad for rich yuppies which had run its course? I think it certainly was for rich yuppies. I think anyone who denies a plane which would cost a $16,000 return when you could get a plane ticket over for about 700 return quite easily. That's ridiculous. It was never cheap. It was always for rich people, but especially after Walpole increased the prices to be for like what rich businessmen would pay for it. It was completely out of the range of normal people. And what they did sometimes with Concord was they would get people onto a Concord and they would get it to fly out of London and would go around in a circle and come back after an hour. And people say, oh, hey, this is great. No normal people can afford a Concorde. No, middle class people using that could afford the Concorde as a kind of like, oh, isn't this wonderful? But they didn't actually get to go anywhere on it. It was still pretty like ridiculous. If you actually wanted to use it as a mode of transport rather than a kind of weird, fun detour for the middle class who want to have got a spare thousand pounds, it's just not what you'd think the best way to do. So was it for rich yuppies? I'll tell you a line that I was reading Jeremy Clarkson. He had a book called I Know You Got Soul and the first article was on the Concords. I was reading through that and Jeremy Clarkson, controversial character, but I was reading through it because I remember enjoying his writing on this. A line really stuck out to me where he said that uh, he was describing like people who've got the opinion that, that the Concord was a waste of money because it was only for rich people. And he described it like this. So he's describing they in the sentence is describing like rich liberals who hate that. He said they thought the ordinary miner and nurse had paid for the Concorde and derived no benefit, but we did. 
because we're the ones on the ground pointing. He said, by sure like whimsy and fascination of actually having this, that it actually had a benefit. So I'd like people, if you've listened to this podcast before, I would pretty much going to say the same thing that I said about Buckingham Palace and the renovations. I think there is a certain thing to be said for like national pride and spending money on something. But I think things like this should try and run a profit if they can. And I think they did run a profit, but, you know, it would have been nicer if this had been somehow used because government funding had went into it so the normal man and woman could have derived better use from it because, you know, I'm living a town without a hospital. I'm sure that I've heard places like Kidderminster doesn't have a hospital. Places up in Upper Scotland don't have a hospital. And if you had said, hey, do you want to have a £1.3 billion investment over the next 30 years to have a hospital in any of these places? I mean, even if it isn't in Northern Ireland, even if it was in Wales or Scotland or north of England or south of England or Jersey, I kind of feel that this would be benefiting more people than a couple of people. Oh, look at the pretty birdie up in the sky. It's It was cool to have, but was it a good amount of money? No. Was it wasted on yuppies? Yes. There's a fourth question I really probably should have asked, which was, <clears throat> is it a bad thing that we're going back because we could have travelled the Atlantic in 3.3 hours. No, it's 8. I kind of feel that it's good if we can get this technology and make it so the masses of people can use it. But it's in the same way that, you know, oh, hey, you know, we can clone the dodo and you can try its meat. Yeah, we can try it. But who's going to really be paying this sort of money to have like £100,000 to clone a dodo to eat its meat? It's certainly not going to be the minor or the nurse. And people can say, oh, it's lovely. We can see a dodo being eaten or whatever. I don't think that that's really for most people. So, yeah, I come down on the side that you should try and pay for what you use. And I don't think this was the best project for that. Now, one final theory I'm going to mention is when you're looking up things about the Concorde, a lot of people kind of have this weird flat earth theory, if you're aware of the flat earth theory that the world is flat. And they say because the Concorde flew at 60,000 feet, you could see the curvature of the earth. But a lot of flat earth theorists say, no, you couldn't. You saw it was a straight line. It was absolutely flat. And once people saw this, they knew there was a flat earth. So that's why they had to stop Concorde. Um, yeah, that's pretty ridiculous, I think. <laughs> just from my opinion yeah no I think enough people have taken pictures of it that you, uh, you can always argue they're edited if you want to but I don't think this is a really credible argument like if this was really a problem I don't think it would have lasted 27 years okay so those are my opinions on Concord I just don't really think it was scapegoated I just think it was a white elephant and it was a great piece of technology, but if we could now just take the idea of the Concorde and just mass produce something so everyone can use it and it's not the latest piece of, like, you know, rubbish, then, yeah, let's roll with that. So before I end, I would like to uh, advertise something. Now, most people who advertise stuff get paid, but, uh, yeah, I'm not taking paid advertisement at the minute, but I would just like to advertise a book that I have recently read, and I have been talking to the author, and he's a really great guy. He's a guy called Michael Lee Reck, and he's written a book called Way East of the West Wing. 
this book you can get on Amazon and you know you can also buy it digitally or paper but I think the digital version is probably the best that's the version that I got just imagine it as kind of like between 90s and 2000 American pop culture mixed in with a kind of weird Irish colloquialism that a major American player ends up moving to Ireland a major American political player moves to Ireland and he's trying to work with an Irish political thing and it's hilarious if you ever read something like Fat or let's watch something like Father Ted like it's really great it's actually it's quite a big deal and I would advise anyone else to get it again it is way east of the West Wing it is by Michael Lee Reck and I would say guys seriously get this like this is something I'm choosing to advertise I'm not getting any money out of it I just genuinely think it's that good so if you guys want to run with it that's absolutely fine so I'm Luke from scapegoat um, if you guys would like this on iTunes or whatever your podcast player is and write us a nice review that would be lovely if you don't want to do that that's absolutely fine no pressure yeah i'm guys uh, thanks very much oh by the way i'm probably going to record that tu144 podcast if people ask for it so if you send me a message saying you want it i probably will do it it'll be about five minutes but i just didn't think the entire story of that really fit into the story of the concord if you go away in too many superfluous details people are like okay why are you talking about this russian plane and why it crashed because you know what because you know it's an interesting story but you know like the et video game one that uh, you know i would have liked to include that in the violent video game one but you know sometimes if the story doesn't fit you can't make it work okay guys thanks very much i'll talk to you soon Bye bye